This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. It all started with a single drop of water around 13,000 years ago. A glacier high up in the mountains started to melt. That steady drip became a trickle and eventually a river. Birds, insects, mammals and fish began to call it home. An ecosystem was born and life began to flourish. For thousands of years, the river flowed free from 5,000 feet up in the mountains down into the Strait of Juan de Fuca on the edge of the Pacific Ocean until 100 years ago, a moment ago in the life of the river. But in that moment, everything changed. A dam was built, two dams to be exact, and the water of the Elwha River in Washington State was halted for human progress, hydroelectricity, for human life. But life as the river knew it started to crumble. And as the dams were constructed, the ecosystem became dismantled. But a river is patient. What came next is an amazing story of nature's resilience and the wonder of what's possible when we set back the clock on a damaged ecosystem. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Oh, cool. Okay. I recognize it from the photographs. That's awesome. Right. So it would have been from that piece of land there to that piece there. Right. Standing at the end of a short hiking trail, only about a quarter of a mile from a parking lot, I'm squinting to see. You can still see a little bit of parts of the dam that they, you know, just wasn't economically reasonable to remove. That's Sarah, Sarah Creechbaum. She's the superintendent of Olympic National Park that the Elwha River runs through. She could have taken me anywhere in her park, But it's this spot she chose. Five years ago, there was a dam right over there. And now it feels like hallowed ground for me. Because that dam is no longer there. And nature is fighting its way back. But now they're getting a little bit overgrown with plants, which is, of course, what we want to have happen. Yeah. (laughs) In the late 1800s, a Canadian entrepreneur arrived on the scene, Thomas Oldwell. And when he looked at the Elwha River he saw a business opportunity. All that water rushing down the mountain was energy. Energy that he could harness and control by building a dam. It was the turn of the century, and that's what we did to control water and create electricity for people moving into the area. So Mm -hmm. it made perfect sense at the time. They just weren't um, very friendly for fish. Fish. 
You see, this is the Pacific Northwest, and fish, salmon, are woven into this place like nowhere else. For thousands of years, they've swum and spawned in the Elwha, part of this river's lifeblood. But that lifeblood was severed in 1913 when the dam was completed. This created a massive ecological disruption and cut off the salmon runs that the local tribe, the Elwha Clallam tribe, had relied on for centuries. Oldwell didn't comply with a Washington state law that required the construction of a fish passage around dams. He eventually agreed to build a fish hatchery to appease the state, but it failed and was shut down. A second dam was built above the first in 1927. The dams provided power to communities around the Olympic Peninsula for about a hundred years. But as nearby cities like Port Angeles grew, the dams couldn't meet the demand for electricity. It seemed like they'd outlived their usefulness. In 1979, the federal government recognized that the tribes of the Pacific Northwest had been denied the right to their historic fishing practices. That, combined with the fact that the dams were aging, got the ball rolling on an ambitious idea. What if the dams could be removed entirely? The only problem was is that nobody how, knew how to do it and it had been, never been done before, so it was predicted to be very scary and very costly. After years of lobbying and a lot of debate, Congress passed the Elwha River Ecosystem and Fisheries Restoration Act in 1992. The dams would be coming down. Nearly two decades later, the physical process of removing the dams began. It took three years, but finally, on August 26, 2014, demolition was completed. The Elwha River was freed. Suddenly, more than 70 river miles of pristine spawning habitat were available to the fish. The removal was the largest line item construction project in the history of the National Park Service. $325 million. But looking at this site now, you wouldn't know that a giant concrete slab used to stand right here. It's just extraordinary uh, to move back and forth in your mind between what was and what is now. I wish people could see the huge beaming smile that's on your face right now, you know. Yeah. This feels odd to me in such a wonderful way. It's strange but so thrilling to see something something natural restored instead of destroyed. And for an ecologist like me, I'm dying to see what's happening, how this river's ecosystem is changing. That's sort of the fun part. It's like this big mystery. Right? What's going to happen when the fish actually get up into the upper reaches, into some of the creeks, and they start to die, and different plants start to grow um, along the streams that give cover for different species that maybe haven't been there in our memories? Um, uh, what's going to happen when we have more black bears, say, coming down into the uh, Elwha Valley? can be really cool to see what happens. Bears, don't get me started, but there's a lot more besides. To see what has happened, I leave the hillside and head down to the river valley. Time to get my boots wet. What we're setting up here is just kind of our fish processing station. This is George Pess. 
He's a fisheries biologist with the federal government. He's in his 60s with a hint of New York about his accent. What an amazing place you brought us to here. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> it's like a little Shangri-La. Yeah, if it's a pretty special place, that's for sure. I've met up with him on a rocky bank of a small tributary of the Elwar. There are tall coniferous trees all around us and the sunlight is pouring through. It's shimmering off the water. George and a few other researchers he works with have been tracking juvenile fish in the river since the dam removal. If the fish are doing okay, there's hope for the whole ecosystem. The dams came down pretty dramatically. In the grand scheme of a river, it happened fast. A quick, physical change on the landscape. But biological, ecological changes, like with these fish, often take longer. So it takes several generations to actually see those changes. You see immediate changes sometimes with uh, their offspring more so than, than themselves almost. George and the young salmon are on the front line of the changes that are happening here. The fish might be able to give us clues as to how future generations will use this now wild river. George and his team count and measure the fish. But to do that, first they have to catch them. So the fish will be caught using the electrofisher. The electrofisher is a metal rod attached to a battery that sends a mild electrical pulse into the water. And basically what's going to happen is he's going to shock up. He'll stun them and you'll just see him floating or kind of moving away and just... We grab them with the net and just put them in the bucket. Just to be clear, this doesn't harm the fish. It briefly stuns them so George and his team can quickly count them and return them to the river. It's a system that's used a lot. George's colleague, Mike McHenry, steps into the water wearing a metal-framed backpack contraption. It looks like something out of a Ghostbusters movie. And it has what looks like a long grey tail trailing behind him. That's the ground wire. I know when I started my career, the shockers were extremely heavy. Um, basically, we're carrying a car battery around. Now they have lighter lithium batteries, but the process is still the same. We're all wearing waders with rubber boots on so we don't get shocked standing in the water. Seems like a small but important detail. Three of us are holding poles with small dinner plate sized nets on the end, and we flank Mike, who's standing in the middle of the water with his shocker. All right, so we got netters, we got buckets. Mike puts the metal rod into the water. It's about three feet long, and he pushes a button and it sends out an electric pulse. It makes a high-pitched sound. Out of the murky water, I start to see tiny fish float up. And try and dry the fish to you. Stunned, but alive, laid out flat on their sides. Oh, I, okay, so they don't surface, right? They could be... They could be under, yeah. They could I be see. under there. And there's yep. lots of algae for them to hide in. Yep. We're scooping up the fish as we go. Most of them are really small, only an inch or two long. Some of the more lively ones try to swim for cover in the silty leaves at the edge of the creek. Oh, big guy there. Mike, I think I'm going to turn you down a notch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that one there? One right there, yeah. Yep. Good eyes. Yeah, nice. Way to go. Soon there are dozens of them around us, skirting every which way. Wow, okay, they're coming in thick and fast now, aren't they? Yeah. I can't keep up with them, and my hand suddenly touches the top of the water. There you go. Oh, yeah, I got a zap from the water then. <laughs> huh. Another one out there, Chris. Got it. Straight in front. Yep. After about 20 minutes of work and some minor electric shocks, we have over 200 fish yeah. in our bucket. Whew, most successful fishing trip I've ever had, that's for sure. And then they begin to count. Coho 72. Coho 72. 3.9. 3.9, no tag, no clip. 
So the, the guys have brought the buckets full of the young fish over to the table now and they're processing them. So they place them into this tub that's got sort of a, um, a, a liquid in there that anaesthetizes them a little bit so they're easier to handle and they weigh them. And you can hear Todd calling out the species. Coho 71. The length. 3.9. 3.9. And whether or not they've been tagged. 3.9, no tag, no clip. And then George is taking all the data down into a, into a laptop. 3.6. Really amazing, efficient system they've got going on. Coho 76. Heads down, methodical, 6.1. focused. 6.1, no tag, no clip. They do this over and over again, hundreds of times. They're at it for hours. Coho 67. Coho 67. They also take a tiny DNA sample from the tail, not much bigger than a pencil tip, a key bit of information that will be used to see where and how far up the river the fish go. Coho 66. They count almost 400 fish in total for the entire day. Coho 75. It's a bit of a surreal process. Shocking fish, catching them, counting them, releasing them. It isn't lost on George and his team. George equates this whole process to an alien abduction for the fish. Where another being is coming into your environment, stunning you, drugging you, taking something from you, putting something in you, and then releasing you back in your environment, and you have to tell everyone else that just happened and nobody believes you. You whatever, just... Whatever you say there. That's what you told your wife because you were at the bar. We know. <laughs> okay, back to business. Coho 64. Coho 64. 3.4. 3.4, no tag, no clip. And the fish are coming back. When the dams were in place, only about 500 to 2,000 Chinook salmon were returning each year. Now that number is about 7,500, up to 15 times more. For the lower Elwha Klallam tribe, salmon have always been an essential part of their livelihoods. To help bring salmon back to the Elwha, they placed hatchery-raised salmon in several of the tributaries connected to the river between where the dams used to be. Unlike farm-raised fish, hatchery salmon are raised specifically to be released back into the wild. In the first two years since the dams were removed, George and his team found that almost all the fish coming back to these areas to spawn were the offspring of those hatchery fish. But that's changing. Now what we're seeing is that less than half of them, or maybe even two-thirds of them, are, are not that. So in other words, mm. those fish start to basically call that home and start to utilize those areas. Meaning new wild fish that were not born in the hatchery were coming back. They've rewilded themselves in some ways. Yes, they? absolutely. That's fascinating. And in just a short order as well. Within one generation, really. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, it's pretty amazing because the life of a Chinook or a, sorry, a coho is you know about three years, essentially two to three years. In other words, the coho salmon are learning quickly about the availability of all this new river habitat, that seventy-mile stretch. So some of these stray fish, the ones that stray, are kind of the, the pioneers for their species, yes. right? Pushing on in. Absolutely, absolutely, and. Um, and really what's interesting, too, is that uh, males will stray more than females because they're always looking for females. So really it's when the females kind of establish areas, that's when things start to change. Coho 71. Coho 71. As with most wildlife species, it's the females that are most important. They're the ones that bring new life, after all. Then, as we're counting, we find something really special, a yearling Chinook salmon. 
Oh, that's so cool. This is a discovery that would have been very unlikely before the dam removal, and it all has to do with something known as life history strategy. Bear with me, I'm going to get all ecological on you for a moment. A life history strategy is an ecological term that basically refers to an animal's life cycle, how often it breeds, how it survives, and the pattern of its life. Different groups within the same species can have different life history strategies. And now that the dams are gone, the river is seeing a reawakening of new life history strategies form, and the yearling Chinook is a perfect example of that. Before the dams were removed, young Chinook only had access to the lower reaches of the dam. The water was warmer, so typically they would hatch, spend two or three months in the river, and then head out to the ocean. But now, with access to the cooler, upper reaches of the Elwar, some Chinook are staying in the river longer. This allows them to grow slower and bigger. And it creates more diversity among the population, which means a better chance the population will remain strong. That's why this group was so excited to find a yearling Chinook in their count. George equates it to having a diverse financial portfolio. If you have a certain amount of money, you don't want everything to be in stocks. You want it to be in stocks and bonds and mutual funds and land because any type of financial disturbance can affect you. So the stability comes from having that diversity so that if stocks go down, bonds might go up. So your overall net is okay. It's the same thing with populations of animals. Other species along the Elwar are developing new life history strategies as well, like the American Dipper. Dippers are those little birds that basically are the size of a golf ball with a little toothpick as a you know, tail. And they, and they live along river systems and they eat insects in, in, the, um, in the streams and other things. These little migratory birds are getting bigger because along with insects, they now have more salmon carcasses and salmon eggs to chow down on. And those are kind of like little pieces of steak or protein pills for these animals. So instead of having one one clutch or one set of eggs each year, they started to have two sets and they became resident uh, dippers instead of migratory dippers. So with so many rich nutrients available to them, the American Dipper stopped migrating away from the Elwar and started sticking around all year long. And they had more young, so their life histories are changing too, because of the fish. I think that the increase in the amount of different life histories that we're seeing, the increase in the numbers of fish, the increase in the distribution of where we're seeing them, all point to one thing, and that means if fish are more utilizing areas and they're healthier, then that means that the ecosystem is actually responding. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. As we're hiking back to the truck, we make another surprising discovery. So big! A male Chinook salmon that has died naturally after coming back up river and spawning. It's just huge. I can't believe the size of him. He is, I'm 6'4", and he's, he's longer by, by about six or eight inches than my leg. Yeah, I'm guessing he was 30 pounds when he was in his prime. Yeah. 
And I mean, if you could see this fish, I mean, it's not a small creature. This is not something you catch on the end of a line in England, you know. <laughs> this is... The dams were down by 2014, and in the life cycle of a Chinook, they returned to the river from the ocean after four years on average. So if you do the math, this fish could have been the offspring of some of the first fish that had got up here in 2015, and this could be you know, basically one of the returns, uh, you know, one of the offspring from one of the original colonizers. Well, it's amazing, right? So this yeah. is like, a, like this, this guy is on the frontier of bringing back the salmon population here, could right? very well be. And one of the first ones, effectively. Yeah, yeah. This fish could be a sign that the system is working. It's a lesson that more often than not, we just need to get out of the way and let nature do her thing. You know, these fish are doing what they're supposed to do. They've been doing it a long time, about 120 million years, so I think they know what to do. And over that time, over that 120 million years, they've become core to their ecosystem. Studies have shown that through the course of their life cycle, salmon benefit over 130 species of insects, birds, fish, and mammals. But for George, the power of this place goes way beyond just the science. What is it about this place that you love? Um, like, take your science hat off for a moment. And yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, uh, I get emotional about it because... Uh, you know, boy, how do I put this? This place and my personal part of it I always uh, I equate this back to my childhood. Um, I equate this back to something that I believe that's larger than us. It's a very humbling experience to see these large-scale things occur in front of you in your lifetime. And um, ultimately, it brings me joy and happiness because uh, that there is a plan. And um, I may be part of it, but, you know, there's so much more to it than us. You see the eagles? I meet up with Robert Ellefson, an elder with the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe. He's also a trained biologist and runs the fisheries management program for the tribe. We're strolling across a sandy beach towards the mouth of the Elwha River, where it spills into the sea, and he's excited to share the place with me. I'm surprised by what he shows me first. We got a prolific number of surfers out here now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming back. <laughs> That's all part of the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they are very helpful and they're, you know, generally very uh, respectful. That's awesome. Of the environment. Oh, who'd have thought? Pull the dams down, bring the surfers back. The surfers are back for a very specific reason. You see, this sandy beach we're walking on didn't used to be here. After the two dams came down, it released 33 million tons of sediment. A hundred years worth that had been building up behind the dams that has literally reshaped the topography of the land. Insta Beach. So can you point to the river mouth? Well, you can't even see where it comes no, out. No, you can't even see the river mouth. It's a half mile walk that way. We'll walk down here, it's easier to walk on the beach. But okay. This whole area used to be a rocky shoreline. The new beach is almost a mile long and full of soft, dark sand. 
that sand and gravel was almost non-existent. That's hard to believe. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, it's so if you can feel how dynamic it is, you know, it feels like a brand new place in some ways, right? Nature taking control again. And it's not just the surfers that have repopulated this beach. Just a year after the dams were removed, Dungeness crabs started to show up in the seawater at the edge of the new beach. By the next year, they were out there in such numbers that uh, some of our tribal members and some of the state uh, harvesters uh, started harvesting and making money out here off off the beach in front of all this sand and gravel because that's what they need to dig into to protect themselves. They need it for protection against the hard currents out here and from predators. It's quite hard to get your head around that a liberated river can result in new habitat that saltwater crabs now call home. The dam removal made massive physical changes to the landscape, and nowhere are these changes more visible than standing on this beach. All this change offers new ways for wildlife to live. The dipper doesn't need to leave to find food. Crabs can call this beach home now, and salmon transition from salt water to fresh water as they begin their journey upriver to spend time in the higher, cooler parts of the river. The changes to these life history strategies mean the health of this river ecosystem is improving. And Robert wants to return full circle to his ancestral history too. He's hopeful that in a couple of years the salmon numbers will be high enough for him to start commercial fishing again. It's impressive what nature can do when we humans just get out of the way. It's all just like we predicted it would happen if things went right. And it's actually, if anything, happening faster than what we'd hoped. Hope. It's something I've felt a lot in these past two days. Not just witnessing the return of a river, but what it means to the people here too. George Pest, the fish researcher, told me he used to take his daughters camping at the headwaters of the Elwar when they were young but they would see no fish. But now, his daughters are grown, the dams are gone, and he's planning another camping trip. And I'm really looking forward to taking them up there when there's enough fish up there that we sleep at night and you can smell them, mm. <laughs> you know, and you can hear them at night spawning and just, you know, that's a, that's a touchstone, you know, that's a change profound change so to me that's really what it's all about ultimately these profound things are possible because nature is resilient and dynamic and sometimes it just means supporting her giving nature the opportunity to bounce back as I was looking down at the site where the dam used to be with Sarah the superintendent of the National Park she brought it all into focus about how so many different people and walks of life and interest groups came together to do something big, to remove two giant dams. That's crazy talk, man. Nobody goes there. Good things aren't ever easy, but we pulled it off. It's energy and a story like this that really does make it feel like anything's possible. And 
I don't know about you, but that's a story that I need, I need to hear right now, right? I need to hear that human beings, when we do our best, can do something at, on this magnitude. To me, that's the message for the future. Am I allowed to hug you even though you're in <laughs> uniform? <laughs> that's just amazing. It's these wild places that ground us and bring us back to our human roots and what we're capable of. And from a drip in the mountains to a river set free, it's a story that will unfold for hundreds of years to come as it follows the twists and turns in the life of a river and everything that it brings. We'll be sharing some amazing photos of the Elmar River restoration taken by our photographer, Megan Farmer. Thanks, Megan. Check them out on our Instagram, at The Wild Pod. If you enjoy The Wild, and I hope you do, I'd like to ask you to tell two friends about the podcast and encourage them to subscribe. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we'll be able to produce. Thank you. On the next episode of The Wild, we'll take a look at the transformative power of coming face-to-face with a wild animal. Suddenly, I stop in my tracks because I'm stopped by two blazing eyes that are looking right into mine, right in front of me, on the path. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it, including organizations like Washington's National Park Fund. I want to give them a special thanks for their help with this episode. We've got a link to their website as well as other resources at thewildpod.org. The Wild is a production of KURW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Dyer Oxley, Tio Popescu, Maria Powell, Brendan Sweeney, and Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. Thanks, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.